Well, we've done a we've done a couple of things already to kind of set up the teaching portion of the worship service. We've read the 34th Psalm as a responsive reading. Um, that's the text, Psalm 34. I, I encourage you to uh, open your Bibles to Psalm 34. You can use the Pew Bible. It's page 397. You could also use this, but there's no verse numbers on it. But you, but this is the 34th Psalm as well, the, the bulletin insert. And then, of course, we introduced David and thanking God for his provision at a time of need for us and a provision of God meeting his need as well. And so it's, you know, it all came together, of course, in a way that even the densest saint, you know, sees the Lord in it, say, you know, this is, this is of God. And it illustrates how God provides uh, so that God gets the glory, our faith is strengthened. And Psalm 34 is a psalm of David, uh, a psalm of praise to God on the heels of a great deliverance, a provision of God, and it illustrates how God provides. And it's not just how God did it 3,000 years ago in the life of David. It, it's how God provides in, in your life, in mine, and in, and in our life together. I'm, I'm not trying to teach the whole psalm today. There's, gonna, there's a, a lot of things in here that I'm not going to touch on. There may be some questions left unanswered. I just want to uh, point out three principles, if you will, about God's provision and God's way of providing that will help us understand how God provides in our own lives. Uh, the first one is this. God's provision shines in times of trouble. It does not prevent them. Uh, God's provision shines in times of trouble. It does not prevent times of trouble. And the reason, this is so obvious, but the reason it's so important to just kind of hear that again and again is that times of trouble in our own lives very often tempt us to lose our faith, or maybe not lose is too strong a word, but to weaken in our faith uh, about in God's willingness to provide, um, maybe in his ability to provide. In a few cases, sometimes, even to uh, lose faith in God's very existence. You know, like if he, if he really did exist, this, this wouldn't have happened. And the flesh reasons, you know, kind of the shoulder demons whisper. If God was such a good provider, if he was all that, if he loved you, if he, if he could provide or if he wanted to, you wouldn't be in such a fix to begin with. You wouldn't have such money problems or you wouldn't have com uh, complicated and conflicted relationships with family members. You wouldn't have marriage problems, issues. You would, your, your kids, either in, in the home or, a, or adult, they wouldn't be making you crazy. They... You know, they, this wouldn't be the way it is. You wouldn't be lonely or you wouldn't be sick. Whatever it is, you know, whatever the issue is, you think if God is really who the Bible says he is, then I, things, it would, you know, it would be all good all the time. And it's not good now. And, it's, and, and so the reasoning goes, maybe God just won't. He refuses to provide what is needed. Maybe he isn't as good as I've been led to believe. 
Or maybe he's good, but he just doesn't love me as much as I've been led to believe. Or some, you know, some would even take it beyond that. Maybe he can't. Maybe there's nothing he can do about it. Or, and as I said, some even take, it's rarely, but some seem to take the, the, the last step and say, you know what, he can't because he isn't. He doesn't even exist. If he did exist, my life wouldn't be the way it is right now. But there's absolutely nothing in the Bible to suggest that God has promised or that his goodness demands that he guard us from trouble. Here's a promise nobody claims. Jesus promised, in this world, you will have trouble. I've never heard any Christian pray, Lord, you promised that your people would have trouble. <laughs> and I just want to claim that promise, Lord. Open the windows of heaven and pour out some calamity. You know, I want my share. Prayed no one ever, right? I mean, and you look at the clues, and if you call them clues, it's so obvious, I hesitate to call them clues, but if you kind of look at the clues in this 34th Psalm, verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Wait a minute, you mean someone who, who believes in God, who trusts in God, who's the object of the Lord's favor might be you know afraid sometimes he might find himself in a situation where he's afraid this verse 6 this poor man cried and the Lord heard him I mean one of the one of God's chosen could describe himself I mean, you know as poor as needy now continue this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his, you've read it a couple times, what's the next word? Troubles. Sounds like more than one. Sounds like several, in fact, all of them. Verse 8, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Why would God's people have to take refuge from anything? Why would they be threatened in such a way they feel like they need a hiding place? Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their, and there's that word again, troubles. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. So according to this psalm, you know, just stop right there, just taking those little bits of, uh, of the biblical data there. According to this psalm, the person on whom God's favor rests, this person who believes in God, who knows of God, thinks of God as their heavenly Father, uh, who has promised to supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, Philippians, may, that person may nevertheless sometimes find himself or herself in a situation in which he's uh, 
afraid or needy or in trouble or, or being threatened and needing a place of refuge or even have uh, be broken hearted by some soul crushing disappointment. So when we are there, when, you know, when that, yeah, that's what I'm going through. That's when we're there, when we're in that kind of season of life, when we are, you know, we do need refuge. We feel like we do need refuge. We, we are in need. We are being threatened. We, we are brokenhearted. We are being afflicted. We can't say with any biblical justification, what gives what gives, Lord? I thought the deal was, I thought the deal was, I do what I'm supposed to do for you, mostly, reasonably. And, and you're supposed to keep bad things from happening to me. I, I can't tell you how many people I've met. Well, I want to say this is people I've met and things. I've, it's been hundreds of them, hundreds of them who've made this basic complaint. But I've made it too. It's like the default response of the flesh. It's just, you know, it's just there's a temptation to do that. You know, why, why me? Everybody says, why me? Nobody says, why not me? But I really can't tell you how many people I've met who are basically angry at God for welching on his part of the deal. But that has never, ever been the deal. Never, ever. Ever since the fall of man, the deal has been, there's another verse nobody claims, Job 5, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. That's the deal. But in those times of trouble, all the times aren't like that. All the seasons of life aren't like that. But some seasons are like that. In the time of trouble, of hardship, of disappointment, of need, it's in those times when God's provision really shines. And I use that word shines. I... I'm thinking this week, I, I wish I could, they tried to come up with a better word than shines, but the reason I use it, I'm trying to allow for the fact that the Bible teaches that God provides for all people all the time, not just in times of trouble. So I can't say God's provision shows up when times of trouble because it's, it's there all the time. Jesus tells us that God makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. All the time, God provides. Paul preached to the pagans at Lystra. He, speaking of God, did good to you by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. It's for everybody, Christian, non-Christian, believing, unbelieving. People we would think of as good people. People that we would think of as wicked people, bad people. God provides for everyone at every moment. Theologians call it common grace. But for the most part, it goes unnoticed, doesn't it? 
taken for granted. Common grace. We tend not to marvel at the common, God's ordinary, everyday provisions. But so, that's why I say it's, it's there all the time, God's provision for everybody in some way. But God's provision really shines, is magnified, is glorified in times of trouble. God's provision is in our every breath. But when we're pressed between the Egyptian army on one side and the Red Sea on the other side, that's when God's provision really shines so that what God does, people are talking about it for generations. We thank God for every meal we eat. But God's provision really stands out where you don't know where the next meal's coming from. And it shows up. It's just how it happened. On more than one occasion at George Mueller, I've always called him George Mueller. I read this week that he, George Mueller, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, English fellow who ran orphanages, he ran one orphanage and then he, he did a lot of other orphanages later in his career, but he, late 1800s, so we'll say how he said it, I'll try to say it how he said it, I've been saying Mueller all my life, he called it, he's pronounced his name Meller, he's got to be the expert at what his last name is, so, but Reverend Meller, more than one time, more than one time. It wasn't all the time, but it was more than one time. He had dozens of children, maybe as many as 130 children, orphans, in his orphanage, sit down for breakfast when there wasn't a scrap of food in the house. By faith, they took, the pla they took their places at the table. They were directed to by Meller and thanked God in prayer for his provision, and on one occasion, something like this happened on more than one occasion, but on one occasion, on Amen, there was a knock at the door, and a baker was there with enough bread for everybody. And then the milkman's cart broke down in front of the orphanage, and he gave them the milk that would have spoiled. Much more memorable <laughs> than the... Uh, then your last meal that you had, God, God provided if you had breakfast in the morning, God provided it. The next meal you have after church today, God provided that. But boy, when you're pressed against it in the time of trouble, the time of need, the time of hardship, the time of privation, that's when God's provision really shines and you remember it and it builds your faith. It, it strengthens it the rest of your life. If the time of need was severe enough. So, the time of need, the time of privation, hardship, it isn't time to give up on your faith in God because it obviously isn't working. It's the time to cry out to God, to lean into God, to press into Him, to double down on your faith. And how he loves, how God loves 
to show up in those circumstances for his glory, for our blessing. Uh, sometimes not show up, y'all, it seems to show off. <laughs> to make you and others say, no, wow, that's of God. That's God right there. That's all it could be. I, who can count? You know, I, I've been a, a believer since 1974, and who could count uh, the, uh, how many times God has answered a prayer? I, I couldn't venture a guess. But I'll never forget. And I'll say most of those times I really have forgotten. I prayed, God answered, closed the books, it's over, I've forgotten about it. But I'll never forget about our little granddaughter Eden, born far too soon, teetering between life and death for weeks on end, and God answered the prayers of many so marvelously. And I, I, I think about that, I think about that just about every time I see her. Just about every time I see her. God provided for the others as well. I've got other grandchildren I love just as much. But boy, that time of need and that great provision. You know, you know when I think about it mostly? When they visit and she's here. Because I know so many of you prayed for her. I see this little soon-to-be six-year-old, right? Soon-to-be six. Um, I, think, I think two things. I think, boy, little girl, you don't even know. And I also think, how good is God? How good is God? And so his provision, which he's provided in that in life, he's provided for all of our grandchildren. But in that time of, you know, that one, that's, the need was so great. It's, wow, God's provision shines, doesn't it? In those times. God's provision shines in times of trouble. It does not prevent them, does it? Of course not. Here's another principle I think, I think is in this psalm. God's provision incorporates human activity. It is not contradicted by it. You know, God's provision incorporates human activity. It doesn't, it, it doesn't contradict it. We Christians drive ourselves crazy with a false choice between God's provision on the one hand, human activity on the other, as if it must be one or the other. It has to be one or the other. Either I provide or God provides. Either man provides or God provides. It can't, it can't be both. And we do this in all kinds of way, ways. It's, it's the crux of a, a number of our traditional theological debates. God's sovereignty versus the free will of man in, the, in salvation, for example. Are you a believer because you believed, or are you a believer because God chose you from before the foundation of the world? I don't know. I don't want to invite the controversy here. But the answer that most fully reflects everything the Bible teaches on that subject is yes. Yes. You're saved because you believed. You're saved because God chose you from before the foundation of the world. One does not rule out the other. 
without making a whole bunch of Bible verses problem passages. In 1786, when William Carey had the idea of obeying the Great Commission by taking the gospel to India, he was told by an older but sadly not wiser minister, Young man, when God is pleased to convert the heathen world, he will do it without your help or mine. As if it has to be one or the other. I know a fellow in college who stopped praying altogether because God is sovereign. I mean, he's going to do what he's going to do. Right? He's going to do what he's going to do. Someone might, you know, lesser ways to do that, to have that same false choice. Someone might say or think something like, I I'm not going to work and save up the money. I'm going to trust the Lord to provide. As if those two options, you know, those two things are incompatible. With it. They can't both be so. I'm not going to study and prepare my sermon. I'm going to trust the Lord to give me the right words to say. As if it has to be one or the other. And it really is not uncommon for Christians to worry that actively pursuing some desired end somehow reflects on their part a lack of faith in God's provision according to his will, according to his timing. But it really isn't so. Earlier we read the 34th Psalm, responsive reading, but there was an omission. And it's called the inscription, which actually is part of the text. It's not, it's not something that the, your Bible's translators or the editors have put, like they put titles on some of the chapters. It's not that. That's not part of the text when you see that, the outline that's written in your Bible if you have a study Bible. Uh, the, it, the inscription really is part of the text. And some of the Psalms have these inscriptions that tell us things like who the author is, the circumstances that prompted the writing of the Psalm. And the inscription on the for the 34th Psalms reads this way. Of David, and you can see it in the Bible if you have a Bible open, Psalm 34. Of David, in other words, this is a Psalm written by David. When he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away, which points us back to the life of David, 1 Samuel, just kind of before we get to that actual episode, uh, just to kind of set the scene a little bit, young David has, has uh, already slain the giant Goliath, the hero of the Philistines. Does anybody remember where Goliath was from? Boy, what a trivia question. Here's 1 Samuel 17. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion of, named Goliath of Gath. Gath came up in the Sunday school, I think. Some... A place name with Gath in it. Goliath of Gath. In the following chapters, we read this growing jealousy of King Saul. You know, to welcome the Israelites back from battle. The women were singing. You know, very famously, this you know this. Saul, they're singing, dancing in the streets. They're saying, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And oh, how that stuck in Saul's craw. He he smelled a coup. He smelled the beginnings of a coup. He was, he was threatened. And before long, in 1 Samuel, David is running for his life from King Saul and his entire army. David went to a priest by the name of Ahimelech and asked for food and a weapon. And I'll read just a couple of verses from 1 Samuel 21. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, 
because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, take that, take it, for there's none but none but that here. And David said, There's none like that. Give it to me. So where can so he's got so he's there, he's on the run, he's got a weapon, he's got David's sword. And where can he go? Where can he go? Here's the next verse. The, the verse right after the one where he picks up Goliath's sword. Goliath of Gath. Because it was a really good sword, he says. 21.10, so verse same in 21.10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. You know, the king of what? <laughs> the king of Gath, as in Goliath of Gath, Goliath's hometown. This is where David thinks to run, carrying the sword of Goliath of Gath, whom he slew. Frying pan to, you know, from frying pan to the fire, right? King of Gath, well served by his advisors. Here's the next verse. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this is not this David, the king of the land? He's not king. He's been anointed king. He's not King Saul is still king. Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. You know, ten thousands of what? Philistines. <laughs> Starting with Goliath of Gath. And so David sees that maybe this wasn't such a good idea. He comes up with plan B right on the spot. He's going to pretend to be crazy. 1 Samuel 21, 12, And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed, and here's, here's where the inscription comes from, So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And it worked. Here's the next verse. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? You know, the king of Gath, he's a Philistine, but he sounds Jewish to me. What, I, have not a, I don't have enough crazy people in my house already <laughs> that you bring me this one? And he throws David out, you know, into the briar patch in freedom. And that's the historical context of which Psalm 34 is David's reflection. All right, here's the inscription again. A psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. And by the way, in Psalm 34, the king of Gath is referred to as Abimelech, not Achish. In Samuel, it's Achish. And this is one of those places where people find an error in the scripture. Obviously, Psalm 34, whoever wrote it, you know, then probably not David, they might say, he was wrong about the name of the king of Gath. And they overlook the fact that Abimelech means my father the king or father of a king, something like that. And so it's very likely that Achish was his personal name and Abimelech is a title like Pharaoh 
or like Caesar. In fact, uh, Abimelech was a title or a name taken by a number of ancient kings. But that aside, so, you know, so this is a place where, where you can, someone who wants to find an error in the scripture can, can find one, but don't, don't look too closely. Don't investigate it too much. It'll evaporate. But that aside, David could have told the story and made himself the hero, which is what a lot of men would have done. I mean, how, this is how it, boy, I was in this jam. This is how I got up. How clever I was. I knew if I could convince the king somehow that I was not a threat to him in any way, I knew that that was my chance and he would release me. And he did. So I, I did it. But that's not how David tells the story of his deliverance from this thing he got himself into. Instead, we find, verse in, in Psalm 34 is his account of it. We find verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him, saved him out of all his troubles. And he connects the dot to everyone else, including you and me. He says, this is just how the Lord is with everybody. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. You think the righteous, the righteous. How does David think of himself as righteous? You know, one of the things about this psalm is, he says, uh, he says verse 13, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Well, his whole thing was about deceit, wasn't it? His whole strategy was deceit. Or he says, he says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Hey, priest, you got a sword around here? I didn't bring any weapons. You think, how does he think of himself and not... You know, as righteous. Well, it's at the end. It was in one you read. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. He's redeemed. David sees no apparent, no inherent conflict between what he did to save himself and God's gracious provision. When you read 1 Samuel 21, the account of what happened, you don't see any obvious miraculous interventions, do you? I mean, the Lord doesn't cause a change to fall from his hands. You don't see any, there aren't any miracles there. You, you don't even see, uh, in, in 1 Samuel, you don't even see uh, David crying out to God. You don't even see prayers of God. And although although we should read them between the lines, I think, in, in view of Psalm 34. When would he have cried, when would he have cried out, as Psalm 34 says, when would he have sought the Lord? I would say under his breath. I don't know this, but I would say under his breath, when he's standing at the gate making marks like a fool and, and is letting his drool, drool him down his beard. Lord, help me. <laughs> In the, in the immediate afterthought, I, I think David must have thought, how in the world did I get out of that one? It can only have been the Lord. 
he did not see his efforts to do something to help himself as some kind of failure to trust God. So, we just apply it. So we go to the doctor and we thank God in heaven for any positive outcome. We get a job and we work and we thank God for the food on the table every time. We prepare our Bible lessons and best make them the best that they can be and we thank God for any fruit that comes from them. It wasn't us. We witness as persuasively as we can and we thank the Lord every time he opens someone's heart to hear, with ears to hear, what is being said to them. Because God's provision incorporates human activity. It's not contradicted by it. It's not either or. It never has been either or. The final principle, and we'll, we'll just be a minute with this. My, my time's really up. God's provision must be welcomed before it can be known. It is not apparent to all. It, it, it can be experienced without being known. That common grace. Everybody, everywhere is experiencing God's goodness right now. Every living person experiencing God's goodness right now, but most of them don't know it. It's experienced, but they're completely unaware of it for the most part. So you can experience God's provision without knowing it, but you, if when you welcome it, you know it. You begin to know it in an experiential way. 34.8, taste and see that the Lord is good. You can't know the goodness of God in an experiential way without being open to it, without receiving it, without being willing, without welcoming it. Jesus says, do you want to be, John 5, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be healed? Can you remember anywhere, the Gospels are made out of Jesus healing people. Do you remember anyone healing the unwilling, the unbelieving, the unreceiving, the unopen? And the ultimate provision of God for us is through the Gospel, of course, What's the gospel? Does, does the gospel keep, keep us from trouble? No, it comes to people already in trouble. It's for people already in trouble. We're already under the sentence of sin and death. We, we, we come into the world already broken, already bent toward evil, already in need of rescue. And how God's provision shines... When there's trouble already there. He provides a very righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for those whose sins had condemned them. He adopts into his family people who had made themselves his enemies. And, and also, God's, the gospel incorporates human activity. It's, it's not contradicted by it. You know, there's somebody... There's somebody who brings the gospel to us. There's human. How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they hear without a witness? 
That's God speaking through them, isn't it? It's God's appealing. God is, he's, he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. It's God's pleading through us. Be reconciled to God. And really, there's human activity on the part of the recipient, isn't there? He expects you, he, he requires you to believe, to trust, to welcome, to receive. And there is no contradiction between God's provision and our, the human of activity of saying, our taking it, receiving it. God is still the total author of salvation. So, here's the last taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's the only way to know, really know, in your heart, in your, in your experience, how, how God has provided. You won't ever know until you receive it, until you take it. You're willing to taste. It's the only way to know how good He really is. How much he loves you. How great is his grace. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, help us all to recognize and return praise to you for all of your provisions. Particularly help us in our weakness when the season of need or hardship or disappointment tempts us to doubt. When it ought to prompt us to cry out to you to look for a great memorable deliverance. Free us from the false choice of either doing or depending, trying or trusting, planning or waiting to be led, for we know that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. And grant grace in this place and in these hearts, everyone who's here, to taste either for the, for the most recent time, to taste anew, or even for the first time, to taste from your goodness and know it in a deep and personal way that you are good. That you love those who come to you in faith. That you love to supply the needs of those who call out to you, who trust in you. We pray in the name of our good and perfect Savior, Jesus. Amen.